No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Rav, how you doing? I'm good. You sound like Thor on the other side of Ragnarok there. That was <laughs> it's gone awesome. now. Oh, no, I liked it. It was a nice effect. It made you tall, you know, which, as we all know, is a good thing. When you, when you need to look as big when you're facing a bear, that's always that's a good right. thing. That's right. That's the kind so. of sound that you would expect at the end of the world, right? That's well, it's the kind of sound I would expect out of somebody trying to sell me a truck I can't afford. We're going to... <laughs> We're going to hope that that's actually in the recording, not in our ears, and, and it's, it becomes an inside joke. Yeah, I think that would be that would be important. And of course, listening to that for a long period of time would be maddening. It would <laughs> drive people absolutely insane. We are fortunate enough to be joined by the Dean of the Gaylord College of Journalism and Mass Communication, Ed. Ed, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Adam. Thank you. Glad to be here with you and Ralph. This is this is fun. In our, in our little secreted away little I, I was actually trying to think about that we need to name this room something so we'll have to work on that i'm not sure exactly the why bunker or the something bu- <laughs> appropriate time. right yes the cabinet war room or something like that yeah we are i'm excited to talk today so so a lot of times what we have as an episode for this show is we're going over current events and media how things are playing out occasionally we'll dip into pop culture but this is our 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 own publication we get to do essentially what we want so occasionally we see steer a little bit away from this the the center of the road and today is going to be one of those episodes that we dedicate to something that we're just interested in as a formed uh, a, a finished piece of media which is uh, a book by a man named Sam Anderson the book's called Boomtown the fantastical saga of Oklahoma City it's chaotic founding it's apocalyptic weather it's purloined basketball team and the dream of becoming a world-class metropolis uh, so that's exciting we're excited to have Ed Kelly here to talk to us about this. Um, a lot of a lot of which because you have been covering Oklahoma City for so long. Also a fan of the book itself. Um, was at the Oklahoman for quite some time, and then at the the Washington Times as well as in Salt Lake City. But came back to Oklahoma uh, to lead at the helm of Gaylord College. So we're excited to have you to talk about this yourself. Uh, when was it that you first heard about the book? Well, I had heard that, uh, obviously, that uh, Anderson was had come in and out of Oklahoma City for a number of years. In fact, he came in 2012 after the Oklahoma City Thunder had made a run, uh, a very uh, unseen run to the NBA Finals. So he came to do a story for uh, the New York Times Magazine, where he works, about this very young basketball team, their improbable run, but at the same time, they had traded away what seemed then and certainly seems now one of the key pieces of the team, James Harden. So he came to do a story for the magazine about the Thunder, but once here, obviously, uh, he saw there was more to Oklahoma City than just this um, this infantile-like basketball team. And so, obviously, he came back several times, uh, including uh, uh, 
fortuitously in the spring of 2013, where he spent a lot of time with Gary England, when uh, central Oklahoma was struck by two killer tornadoes, basically back-to-back, and then came back uh, again uh, in 2016 and 17 when Russell Westbrook, one of the members of the Thunder, was making a run to being the MVP of the NBA. And it's pretty obvious along the way, though, he, he was fascinated by what he saw. So I had heard probably within the last year or so that there was going to be a book that was going to come out sometime in 2018 about this. And I sort of made a mental note that whenever it comes out, you know, I really want to get this book. So uh, there was a, a series of, uh, of, uh, of discussions and book signings in Oklahoma City the third week of August. And I attended one of them at the Oklahoma City National Memorial, where I thought, okay, I'll just go get the book. I'm not even sure I'm going to hang around to have him sign it. Well, it turned out, and I got there late, it turned out that there was a discussion that night with with him, Sam Anderson, and the 39-year-old mayor of Oklahoma City, David Holt. And there were a lot of people there, including uh, former Mayor Ron Nork, who's mentioned in the book, uh, Mike Turpin, one of the civic leaders of Oklahoma City, and lots of other people to hear Anderson talk about his reporting. So I bought two two copies of the book that night. That was a Thursday night. And I got to tell you, and I didn't, I didn't, um, uh, I paid attention to my duties here at Gaylord College over the next 48 hours, but I finished the book on Saturday night. It was just one of those things I simply could not put down. That's how good I thought it was and still is. Well, it's ex- exciting. I'm excited to talk through it. Um, in preparing for the podcast, I tried to find some of these conversations online or, or different interviews. I found one five-minute interview with Sam that was on KGOU. But other than that, I, I couldn't find a lot of material about this. So I'm excited to, to have a long-form discussion or have opportunities for those who have read the book to have to hear some people who've read the book kind of discuss it and give their hot takes about it. Um, I, if Sam Anderson has listened to us, we'd love to have you to, to discuss this as well. Um, I have a feeling that that's, that's a possibility. So um, excited to get into it as well. Um, Ed, when you heard that there was a book being written about Oklahoma City, you know, what was your initial inclination? Because mine, when I hear that there's a national reporter who has, who's made their way to Oklahoma to write something about Oklahoma, um, I, I usually... You're I, expecting the best. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> like, oh, well, come on in. You know, that's, that's usually not the, the, the reaction I, I tend, to, tend to have as well, but you've, you've seen this. Did you have a similar reaction to that? Well, I thought that could happen because I've seen this many, many times that too often there are stories or essays or even books about a particular place, including Oklahoma or Oklahoma City, that had what I would describe as a drive-by feel to them, that the author was content to talk to a few colorful characters, but really wanted to focus uh, particularly on the malcontents, and then he or she would let that sort of pass for the omnipotence in reporting. But I did get a sense, though, just from what I had read, uh, these long pieces that he had done for uh, for the New York Times Magazine, and the fact that I'd heard from other people that he he just kept coming back and back and back. I thought, well, maybe this one, maybe this one will be different because, again, he, uh, if for anything, he had done so much deep reporting rather than, like I said, just come in for a few days and then let other people, particularly people who have. Uh, a view of Oklahoma City is not terribly flattering. Let them do the, sort of the reporting for them. So I was I was I was fairly optimistic that the book would turn out to be 
what it is, which is a just a masterpiece, warts and all, about a very interesting place. Yeah, I think I, I thought that the combination of what he decided to focus his attention on and the way he decided to structure the book, I think, is really fascinating because it's uh, a very mixed chronological picture, which is, I think, perfectly appropriate, and then very mixed in terms of topics. So if you're reading about something and it's not really your main line in a couple of pages, it's going to change. Yeah, but, yeah, it will change. That's exactly right, Ralph. And, and I sort of went back uh, and sort of counted up, okay, how many main characters does he employ to tell the city of Oklahoma City, like you said, in this sort of nonlinear fashion? And, you know, I counted basically seven from a man who I think is he was the first one mentioned in the book Angelo Scott who might be the most interesting one at all who was at the land run and fortunately for everybody in Oklahoma City and certainly for Sam Anderson in telling this story he lived a long long time from Angelo Scott to Russell Westbrook and five people in between that's sort of that's sort of how the the book unfolds, which is a lot better than just being a dry recitation of the ups and downs of Oklahoma City, particularly seen through the eyes of, uh, let's face it, conservative white rich men. That's that was not the case at all. Here. And that's that's already pretty much covered in a lot of the media in Oklahoma, as he outlines as well. Right. You get a lot of feedback about how the media was in a relationship to the politics of Oklahoma and Oklahoma City as it developed. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. But he he stayed away from that and picked out, again, in my mind, basically seven very interesting characters to help tell this story of a city that rose out of nothing in 1889 and 128, 29, almost 130 years later. This is what it is. Yeah, I wanted to read a little bit from the notes on sources that it's in the back, and this this first graph tells a lot. It says, The pattern for this project was set when, reading a book on my first flight out to OKC, I stumbled across the following sentence about the origin of Oklahoma's violent weather. The state is situated in the zone where three climatic regions, humid, subhumid, and semi-arid, meet and mingle. My mind made a, a little leap. In the margin, I wrote, Westbrook, Hardin, Durant. That very basic insight that Oklahoma City was a place where powerful sources came together from great distances, creating crises of equilibrium, led to years of further research, during which I found similar patterns in books, newspapers, magazines, dissertations, old TV footage, blogs, comment comment threads, and more. And that's, that, that's the fascinating thing to me, is he weaves these stories of uh, you know all of the boom and bust, whether it's the literal economic bust that we see through uh, throughout the history of Oklahoma, or the, the 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 meteoric rise of the thunder that slowly dissipates very fast with uh, with 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 Harden leaving the team, um, or tornadoes. I mean, just all of that sort of coming together. And I can't imagine that someone who's lived here necessarily is able to w- w- would have made that connection. Yeah, certainly the start of the of the book, as you suggested, Adam, has almost a James Michener-like feel to it, that in the beginning, before there was even a beginning, this is what Oklahoma and Oklahoma City was. But I think in, in some ways, let's face it, uh, that this book is very much uh, somewhat of a history of violence, of a land run, which was done in a very violent way. And you can only imagine <laughs> what was said, the 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 uh, the guns that were raised against uh, each other, and they were as they were truly scrapping and fighting for 
pieces of land who, of course, the, the violent weather that's been part of of the history here forever, uh, desegregation in the 19, late 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and then, of course, the Oklahoma City bombing uh, in 1995. So, uh, again, violence itself, pure play violence, is very much a part of the history of of this city. Yeah, his picture, I think, of the, the sort of like the night of the land run and the days following, I thought, were really very uh, – they captured a very interesting sense of just how there really wasn't any structure there. It was just people who had fallen on this place. And then, of course, what follows all that, because people stake their claims and there's no things like roads or alleys or anything or like lawsuit. that. Or, or laws or, <laughs> or anything that, that, you know, that it has to, you know, over, over time evolve into something um, that's – you know, they, they could actually function as a city. Yeah, it really is amazing that, uh, as you suggest, Ralph, that it was that out of that incredible chaos that there came some sort of semblance of normalcy. And that, that's why I think, again, I go back and, and use his name. Angelo Scott obviously was one of the, the key players here. And I must tell you, I really had never heard his name. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert on, this, on the history of the city of Oklahoma City, but I probably know more about it than, than most people do. But uh, the fact that he is portrayed as someone who was there, who was a calming effect, he was an educated man who could bring both sides together in a very chaotic and violent situation is, is a miracle. It really is a miracle. Yeah, he suggests at one point that the uh, uh, the land run should be called something like Chaos Explosion Apocalypse Town or Reckoning of the Doom Settlers. <laughs> and, and, you know, for those of us who, who grew up here and, you know, every April here comes another anniversary of the land run and, you know, little little school kids will run across a pasture dressed in, in uh, costumes from the late 19th century. Well, it, it's it, we all, you know, okay, we, we're doing this and, and that's okay. And these kids don't know anything about it. Maybe they'll learn something. But let's move on to the next story because we've heard this story so many times. But I think it took someone like Anderson to come in here with fresh eyes and the ability to really, really tell a story and to dig deep and do the kind of reporting and research that he did to really bring – the land run to life, even for those of us who thought we knew a lot about it. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to talk about was just, so So I, I don't know how old Sam is, but I assume that we're similar in age, and it was really interesting for me to read something through similar eyes. I mean, the, the, the things that he is able to notice and see in Oklahoma City and some of the subcultures um, are the same ones that I, I guess, have fortune to, to interact with as well. But I wanted to talk, Ed, about a little bit about some of the some of these stories. So you you were at the Oklahoman um, from, do it, can I give away the years? You sure can. Okay. I'll let you. From, from May 1975 to June 2011. Does that that's, sound? That's correct. Does that sound right? It's All a right. long time. Um, and so w- what is it like for you to reread some of these stories or hear this from this perspective, whether it's of the, the Murrah building bombing in, in, in 95 or other stories as well, you know, to, 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 to read about them? Do you when you read something like this, do you read it from a critical perspective, from a critical journalist perspective, or you read this from a citizen of Oklahoma perspective? What, what was what was your walk us through the process of you reading this book yourself? Well, the, obviously, the first one is. Uh, uh, did he get it accurate? Are the are the dates, the times, the people, uh, the the people he talked to were was that done in a fashion that lends itself to journalistic credibility? So I was looking obviously to make sure that he had nailed 
in some cases the little stuff spelling people's names the particular year and date i know that seems small to to readers particularly readers who are not oklahomans but for someone like me uh that was the sort of the, the baseline of credibility if you could get this right well then let's go on to uh other things that he got right but but no, I think he, I think, again, I, I keep using the term, I think he really did nail it. Now, there were some things I think he overplayed a little bit and, and others that he underplayed. But, you know, my, my time in the Oklahoma spanned a lot of this uh, from I, I got there uh, sort of at the end of the, of the run of Stanley Draper Sr. and his, uh, his effect on Oklahoma City, both good and bad. Um, I, I got uh, to the Oklahoman as uh, desegregation was unfolding, often in a violent way. In, in the uh, inner city schools in Oklahoma City. Um, I was there certainly for uh, the effect that I.M. Pei, who is one of the key yeah. players in this book and is probably the biggest villain in the book, uh, his, uh, when he came to town in 1964 and said the next 25 years leading up to your centennial in 1989 will basically be the grandest years of your, of your life because we're going to completely destroy but rebuild uh, downtown Oklahoma City into something that can carry into the 21st century. And so I remember, uh, and it's it's mentioned in here, uh, October 1977, when the grand old Biltmore Hotel came down on a Sunday, and what a big, uh, big event that was, and, uh, and the mixed feeling that most people had, because none of this by 1977 had come to fruition. But yet there were still a lot of people believe, well, it's just a matter of time. The economy at the time was really good. Oil and gas was rolling. Um, that that uh, a great day is coming right around the corner, but we need to tear down all these old buildings. Well, of course, absolutely none of that materialized. And then, uh, and then certainly the 1980s, which were incredibly unkind to Oklahoma City and this part of the world with, with the, uh, the, the bust of Penn Square Bank. Um, as well as uh, other banks and savings and loans that went under, and he talks about that in the book. And then, as you mentioned, uh, I was the editor in charge uh, at the Oklahoman at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and I take a somewhat contrarian view uh, about the bombing. Uh, I think a lot of people, Sam Anderson, as well as Sam Presti, who's the uh, who heads the Oklahoma City Thunder, the general manager, uh, who's done a, a by. You know, every stretch of the imagination, a terrific job with the Thunder, despite a few occasional missteps that I think outsiders come in and, and they believe, truly believe that that the bombing defined Oklahoma City as it is today. To me, as someone who was uh, at the epicenter, at the fulcrum of coverage of uh, what happened on that day, the, the following days, the weeks, the months, the trials and all of that that unfolded over the course of, of several years. That into the 21st century, that that the bombing proved what I think a lot of people believe that that when we are at our worst, we can be at our best. But to me, what really defines Oklahoma City today is maps with the metropolitan area projects uh, that were voted on by the people in December 1993. The 25th anniversary will be this December. Uh, that is what has really defined Oklahoma City today because of the hundreds of millions of dollars in citizen money that has gone into this community that has been followed by certainly several billion dollars worth of private investment. So what you see in Oklahoma City and the cool vibe that I think Sam Anderson talks about in this book 
maps defined Oklahoma City more early in the 21st century than I believe the bombing did. Can I can, so can I, can I dig in there a little bit just to just get this? And if it's, this isn't a place you want to go, by no means we have to talk about that much. But can you take me to April 19? 1995 from from your perspective and if are there if there's certain stories that helped you sort of uh, whether it was that specific day or things that the Oklahoman covered that helped you sort of build your perspective that it wasn't something that inevitably defined us so you know if there you know were there positive stories that you were covering or just just maybe walk me through that day real quick cuz I'd really be curious to hear your story there well remember of course that it was a the day dawned as a as a sunny day at the time the Oklahoman was located uh, at Britain Road and Broadway, about six and a half miles as the crow flies from downtown. And when the bombing happened, all of us learned when we were kids that sound travels in waves. Well, it felt like uh, that a that a wave, a sound wave, had crashed into uh, the building where we were at, which at the time was only four years old, and it was built to withstand straight winds of 200 miles an hour. But it felt that building shook, and again, this was six and a half miles away. One of my colleagues, our our assistant managing editor, Mike Shannon, he turned and looked out of my office downtown, and he saw the smoke immediately, and he said, I bet that's the federal building. Hmm. How would anyone know? So, you know, we start scrambling. We send send people immediately to the scene not knowing exactly what happened. We also had... Some of our employees who were downtown that day, either covering events or, in one case, uh, one of our graphic artists who was dropping off his young son at the YMCA daycare center, which was cat corner across the street from the Murrah building. Um, I can remember going downstairs and because uh, I wanted to talk, talk to my big boss, Ed Gaylord, about what we thought was happening just a few minutes uh, after the bomb uh, went off. And he said, do you think it could be, he asked me, he said, do you think it could be natural gas or something like that? And I said, Ed, I don't think so. I think this was, I think this was an act of terror, and obviously it turned out to be. So I tell people, Adam, that, that in many ways that the Oklahoma City bombing was the last big story in America before the Internet. And I say that because <laughs> this sounds really, really silly today in 2018 but we considered that morning for a brief time of putting out an extra edition of replating that morning's newspaper april 19 1995 the first few pages writing stories and photos that we had accumulated uh, on the fly that morning and then publishing it and then somehow getting it to to people so they could read about it uh, just a few hours later but we decided that that, you know, for one thing, we, we could do this, but where would we take it? I mean, we had no place to go. Maybe we could take it downtown, but we had no one to take it either because of our contract newspaper carriers. Most of those people had day jobs, so they weren't going to come back to the newspaper at Britain Road and Broadway to get these newspapers. Plus, let's face it, we really didn't have time to mess with it. So we discarded that idea after an hour or so. But I concluded as we were... I figured that this was obviously going to be the story of our lives, um, and it turned out obviously to be. And I also thought, too, that on that first day that there would be two big stories. And uh, I labeled them at the time, and again, this is not 1995, this is 1995 and not 2001, but I labeled them internally the Twin Towers, not knowing, of course, what was going to happen uh, six and a half years later in New York uh, on 9-11. 
But that one story, one of the Twin Towers, was going to be the crime. And this was first and foremost a crime. And that while we had terrific reporters in the newsroom, that there were going to be other reporters that would parachute in here, particularly from New York and Washington, that had great sources in the FBI, the Justice Department, uh, 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 alcohol and tobacco, firearms agency and other federal agencies they had sources that were better than ours and there were going to be some stories that you know we weren't going to be the lead on i I could accept that but the other twin tower were the people and i knew just from my time of watching how these sorts of things unfold particularly in a pre-internet era that there would be media in this case media from all over the world that would come in for a few hours a few days maybe a week or two but that they would eventually go and that we were going to be the ones that were going to be left behind. And then when it came to the people, particularly the victims, not just the people who were killed, but the people who were wounded, that we absolutely had to own that story, that nobody else could own it. That was, we had to own it because if we got that wrong, and I told Ed Gaylord this, if we got that wrong, that we would we would put his, his empire, his newspaper in financial peril. We had to get that right. And that's why we devoted so much time to the coverage of the people who were affected by this, whether they were uh, the families of those who were killed, the people who were injured, uh, the firemen and other responders that were down on the scene. We spent an inordinate amount of time and resources in ensuring that there was going to be no one that would beat us on that story. One thing that we started um, in the first, uh, really the first few days was that I wanted to write a story on every single person, however many there were, that would be killed. It turned out there, of course, there were 168 of them. We called them profiles of life. And some some of these profiles, we couldn't get people to talk to us, and that's understandable. But we found that there were um, many, many people who wanted to talk about their family members, their friends, their neighbors who were who did perish in the Oklahoma City bombing. And so as soon as we would um, gather enough information that we could write a story, we did. And some of the stories are very short, and some of the stories were longer than uh, than we perhaps uh, initially anticipated. But everybody in the newsroom got involved. We found that the people who really wrote the best profiles were people who were not engaged in news coverage. These were people who are sports writers and, and, and people, mostly women, who covered uh, society news and that sort of thing. And the reason why they were successful with this was real simple. They could write, and they knew how to talk to people. So uh, that that's the reporting that I'm the proudest of, is that we really – we really, really, really try to um, to make sure that um, that we covered the 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 after effects of this from a from a people's perspective, and uh, and I think I think we I look looking back uh, twenty three or so years later I think we I think we did that. So when when you're looking at the way Anderson writes about this, what was your reaction? How did you think about the way he covered it in the book? Well, I thought I thought he I thought he did fine. I thought it was interesting. Uh, you know, he started out with um, the story of the Buffalo Bills, the NFL team, and the great run of success they had in the early 1990s. They never won a Super Bowl, but they went to four of them. And that there was a super fan of the Buffalo Bills named Timothy McVeigh, and um, and then McVeigh, uh, how he uh, of course was uh, in the in the U.S. military, went overseas, became quickly disillusioned. He was underemployed. And just uh, sort of the evolution in 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 a, in a few pages of how McVeigh went from a you know a fan of a of a team in upstate New York to this this person who was going to commit commit mayhem 
on a uh, on an American city, and I'd really never seen anybody take that tag before. But I thought it was a it was a really good one. It was an angle that uh, that I hadn't thought a whole lot about. We, of course, at the paper had done stories about McVeigh's upbringing and his uh, we were uh, particularly his sister and his dad. Um, the fact he had a military record, uh, but we you know we never had really tied together you know his sense of his city buffalo and the nfl team in it so you know i thought he did a a terrific job with that um the the night that i I was there for the book signing one of the people in the audience was stephen taylor uh he later ascended to the oklahoma supreme court where he was chief justice for a while he's from McAllister, but if you may remember that he was the one who uh from McAllister as a district judge was charged with trying uh terry nichols an accomplice with tim mcveigh uh in the bombing and um seeing it through the eye and i thought what he said uh, about um you know what he tried to do to ensure that this was a fair trial uh, and that the response from the city that led all the way to the basketball team uh, coming to town, I, th- I thought he really tied all of that together. So bringing in Judge Judge Taylor into the tale of of the Oklahoma City bombing, I thought was was really pretty inventive. Yeah, one thing I wanted to talk about as well is you talked about the the multiple characters that run throughout the book itself. One of them is Clara Looper, um, and I don't know if you ever had the chance to meet her, or get to know her, and get to know her family at all. But I thought that was a really interesting uh, perspective to bring in here. And you mentioned uh, being at the Oklahoma and during deseg- desegregation of, of schools as well. So talk a little bit about that and, and that story and, and rereading about that as well. Yeah, I had I told my administrative assistant when I was managing editor of the Oklahoman that no matter where I was that you need to find me if Clara Looper calls me no matter where I am whether I'm in the newsroom whether I'm outside the building whether I'm across country you need to run me down so I can either talk to her when she called or quickly return her call Uh, a fascinating woman and I'm so glad this book came out timed to the 60th anniversary of the Katz drugstore set-in, which was in the third week of August in 1958. Uh, Sam Anderson talks in the book, and he has talked publicly since, about how he feels like she is one of the unseen heroes of the civil rights movement in this country. That while much of um, the early, early civil rights uh, movement that happened in the mid to late 1950s one of the key pieces was, I believe it was 1960, with uh, lunch counter set-ins in Greensboro in the Deep South, Greensboro, North Carolina. But actually what she did was two years earlier in Oklahoma City. And I've tried to impress upon people uh, that I've talked to, both bef- certainly uh, years before the book came out, as well as uh, since, that she was 34 years old. She had three kids of her own. She was a school teacher a black woman in a segregated city. What she did was certainly one of the most heroic things in the history of Oklahoma. Those kids that she recruited, who were her own children as well as friends of her children, who went down for a couple of days at Cat's Drugstore and sat down. They were spat on. They had ketchup poured on them. They, every curse word that, that you could possibly come up with, four letters or not, were thrown at those kids, as well as Mrs. Looper. Uh, 
And even though Katz decided after a couple of days, they said no more. We'll, we're going to desegregate this lunch counter as well as the other lunch counters we had at our other stores, that she faced a heap of abuse for a long, long time. But, you know, what was it Dr. King said? The arc of history is long, but it eventually bends toward justice, and um, it certainly did in her case. But she told, you know, she was, she was not necessarily a, a meek woman. She told uh, uncomfortable truths about about uh, the city that she grew up in and the city that she loved. And it took a long time, but she was proven right. And like I said, I'm so glad that this book came out timed, coincidentally or not, uh, at the uh, 60th anniversary of the set-in and uh, the set-in at Cat's Drugstore. And I think you're seeing now from uh, particularly the mayor, David Holt, and other people that there will be a memorial of some sort put in downtown Oklahoma City where Katz once was to be able to tell the story of Mrs. Looper and those kids, those kids who are now, what, in their 60s and early 70s, who did something that, it for, for those of us in 2018, I think it's impossible to understand how courageous that was. I just think it's impossible. But she did it, and uh, fortunately she was the one. In many ways, she was the female version of Jackie Robinson in Oklahoma City. Well, one of the things I like about Anderson's treatment of it is that when they when they accomplish what they needed to accomplish at Cats, she's like, okay, what's next? Yeah. And goes on to, you know, a series of restaurants and a series of other businesses to try to keep the the momentum going. Yeah, the, and, and she did it for a long, long time. Uh, she never gave up. Obviously, there were many setbacks along the way. Uh, the abuse that she took personally, uh, we can't begin to know what it was, uh, or at least all of it. But uh, again, when you write, whether it's a, a, a formal history of Oklahoma City or even the state of Oklahoma, and you get into the issues of race, if she's not on the first page, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about one of the other colorful characters who pops up in this book repeatedly. Uh, my good friend Wayne Coyne. I'm actually not good friends with him. But every time I hear his, uh, there's a story, and Anderson includes the story of when he was working at a Long John Silver's that got held up, and it kind of like changed his life. You know, this kind of like bracing moment of thinking about what the meaning of life was, which is kind of remarkable. Uh, and his presence in Oklahoma City is just, you know, a really interesting facet that I think Anderson treats very well. Yeah, um, so there is, there's actually not a story that's included in here, but I, I wanted to talk about because I, it's, it's connected to me personally. Um, so, um, and it was written about in December 2007 in the Oklahoman, and I never connected that I was at this event and what it actually meant for the history of Oklahoma moving forward. But uh, uh, Coldplay played in Oklahoma City in uh, February of 2006. And Chris Martin is the lead singer of Coldplay. And he hung out that day with Wayne Coyne. In fact, I found some some articles later of, you know, he was, I mean, he was dropping this to like, you know, Rolling Stone uh, writers that he had hung out with Wayne Coyne. And he said this from stage. I was at the concert. Um, I had great seats. Somehow I'd landed on it. It was a, it was a really good show. Um, but he said, uh, from stage, Chris Martin would say Elvis, Dylan, Wayne Coyne, and Johnny Cash. Like that was, that was the company in which Wayne Coyne was being put in. And, you know, uh, to, to me is like, well, you know, he's being facetious and sort of saying, thank you for letting me hang out today. But, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people at a Coldplay concert, as you would imagine, uh, that was in this brand, brand new shiny Ford center. 
uh, a lot of city officials, and their ears perked up when they heard this. They're like, "Wait a minute! What are, what are we talking about? Like, we have like the you know the equivalent of." Elvis or Dylan, you know, uh, in in our own city, and that led to uh, what would eventually be the Flaming Lips Alley, which was named in in Oklahoma City. Uh, and Anderson does a great job of depicting the scene that's happening when the Flaming Lips Alley is being uh, being dedicated, yeah. <laughs> uh, which it has to be absurd because they they let Wayne Coyne and Flaming Lips sort of plan this event, um, which if, I don't know if you've ever been to a Flaming Lips concert, but at the time he was like rolling around in a big clear ball and he would bring fans up on stage to dance uh, you know in costumes and he'd shoot out confetti guns and he had these giant hands I mean it was it was a bizarre show and here we have like this scene of uh, you know Mayor Mick Cornett's up there you know essentially in his, his ribbon cutting suit you know and, and other city, city officials with Wayne Coyne in his pink shirt and and people dressed up as as aliens and Santa Claus on stage and I just I just find it so funny and he's of course like you know shouting uh, offenses and 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 Anderson like covers this really well but i also found there's a video of this online as well i was like he must have watched this somewhere and you can actually watch sort of the cringiness of all the city council members as this as this is taking place but it's interesting because what i like about it is it seems like Sam befriends Wayne Coyne. I mean, the same thing with Gary England, uh, the meteorologist who was at News 9 for a while, that he, he you know, it, it seems like he doesn't just, not like he plops down and has an interview with him, but he comes back to these characters, you know, like I was thinking about Wayne about this, or he, he weaves the characters into the stories. Where was Wayne on April 19th, 1995? Or where, where are these characters when this is happening? Where is Gary England? And it seems like they, they actually grew a friendship along the way and he gets to follow Wayne during an, what's sort of a an, a a similar roller coaster career that he's having as well where I mean it's you know there, there's this peak flaming lips I would say at least as it relates to Oklahoma City there's peak flaming lips as the band but then the relationship with the city that sort of comes up uh, towards the end of the of the, the the first decade of the 2000s and the naming of the alleyway and the the Halloween marches downtown and the New Year's Eve concerts that you know are really promoted and then everyone figures out you know he's he's, a, he's not exactly uh, the kind of guy that we want to necessarily <laughs> associate the city with and and lot, lots of issues come up with that as well and he he has his divorce and and and, and hilarity ensues and all of that but it's a, it's a really fascinating story to to watch him and the friendship that they grow along the way. Well, I think it certainly uh, goes to your point, Adam, about you know the time uh, that we've all mentioned here this afternoon, the time that, that Sam Anderson spent in Oklahoma City. And it's really just very deep reporting where, uh, again, he took the time to come back. And when he came back, that he spent spent time with these with these characters. And the biggest character of all, of course, is, is Wayne Coyne. And, um, you know, the, 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 the scene that he describes that, that I guess it could, he could end up going to jail over it where they were splattering paint <laughs> early one morning or early one Sunday morning on the streets of near Northwest Oklahoma city. Uh, and you could just, you know, you, as Anderson was describing, he was just, you know, he was, he was, um, uh, thrilled by the opportunity to, to do this with coin, but then just fearful Okay, what happens if I get picked up? What's what's that going to mean to my career, to my marriage, to everything I got in life? Because I was following this crazy man around in Oklahoma City. But uh, you know, again, a, a, I go back to the the journalism behind this that he spent the time 
uh, with a lot of people to really to really go deep, and it it obviously shows. And about Coin, it's Coin himself. You know, the, the, you described this uh, naming the alley uh, 10, 11 years ago. Had that been forty years ago, that would have never happened. Yeah. And even twenty years ago, I think I think the civic uh, civic fathers in Oklahoma City would just barely tolerate this. So by two thousand or seven or so, they're tolerating it, but they don't quite quite know they what don't to know do. Why. With it. They don't know why. <laughs> they just know that this guy, for the most part, is good for Oklahoma. City city uh although there's some really rough edges around him but that we need to recognize him because he does bring us some cachet that we otherwise would never have but you know really i think the most endearing part about about wayne coin and certainly anderson wrote about this was that this was the guy's hometown that he still lives despite his his the many millions he's made from rock and roll music he still lives in the same uh, kind of downtrodden neighborhood that he grew up in back in the 1970s and 80s and that this is his town he is warts and all and his city is warts and all as well I, I love the picture of him at the red cup it's i think the last time anderson yeah. talks about him and he's at the red cup sort of talking to the next generation of the future Wayne coins, so it's sort of like passing, you know, passing things along, which is a really very cool image of, of something that was happening in the city. Yeah, now I wanted to read this from the the dedication because I, I love what this said said here. It said, uh, Wayne was famous in a slightly dangerous way. He was unpredictable to a degree that the conservative city did not like. This was a place whose newspaper published not only a daily prayer on its front page, but near consistent characters of an idiotic Barack Obama on its editorial page, and where a six-foot-tall granite monument of the Ten Commandments would soon be erected next to the state capitol. Meanwhile, Wayne Coyne doused himself on stage with fake blood and reveled in public news. <laughs> and sometimes he invited hundreds of fans to gather in parking garages without any kind of permit to play coordinated music on their car stereos. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's the story about him. Like, wh- wouldn't it occur to you if you had a grenade in your luggage, yeah. right? That Because I guess Wayne Coyne caused a bit of a ruckus at the airport because they found a gold spray painted grenade in his luggage and thought, eh. and it turned out to be, of course, just a souvenir that someone had given him and had been hollowed out. But Right. But this is what I love about, um, you know, to, to what we've talked about about how oftentimes national reporters will paint Oklahoma City, particularly now within a, a polarized media landscape that we have, is a lot of it tends to come down to blues and reds and wins and losses and, and, and politics. But Wayne Coyne, he, he is that symbol for this interesting character in the, in the middle of a state that you would expect that it's impossible for, it, it seems like it's impossible for Wayne Coyne to exist anywhere. You know, I mean, he, he considers himself sort of an extraterrestrial <laughs> So, but but yeah, for him and I'll to give be, him that. I yeah, think he, uh, yeah, he pretty much is. Yeah, and then and then to end up in a, a, a town such as Oklahoma City and own it and love it and make it his, you know, it, it speaks it speaks to what Oklahoma City is for a lot of people. Um, it speaks to the history. It's malleable. It's it's uh, in in a sense, it's it's still being developed itself. Yeah, it's. Uh, I used to tell people that that Oklahoma and certainly Oklahoma City are among the youngest places on earth. And that there are still, you know, people uh, today, live today in their 80s and 90s who uh, remember stories from as little children from people who uh, who settled, at least in the western half of the state and certainly the the series of land runs that, that took place beginning in 1889 and um, in many other places in this country. Uh, 
the 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 history has basically been formed. It's been written, but uh, in Oklahoma and particularly Oklahoma City, that history is still is still unfolding. Um, sometimes in orderly ways, and sometimes in really really bizarre ways. So, just out of curiosity, what do you think the effect of this book is going to be? Because it's a it's a first of its kind in a lot of ways. And so, what do you think the the effect of it's going? It hasn't been out for that long, and it's gotten quite a bit of attention. Yeah, it's gotten a lot of attention, uh, and I was surprised it's gotten as much attention as it has nationally. Um, uh, because I think, but he did try to write it for an audience that goes obviously beyond Oklahoma City. I personally think he was successful. How how many other people who who pick this up because they either know his work or they've heard a little bit about this or they've read a review on it, and then get into uh, the ins and outs and the engagement with these this cast of characters that he uses throughout the book? You know who knows, but I think this is nothing but but positive. Um, and I think in, in many ways this uh, reflects a, a sort of a maturity of Oklahoma City that. You know, it's okay. It's not only okay, but it's great to accept a book that was written by somebody who has um, who has a sharp eye from the outside, is not afraid to write about uh, some of the crazy and unfortunate things that happened in the past, but that uh, we can accept that because, um, uh, again, it uh, it is it is us. It's about us, and I've long thought that. Uh, you know, a mortal sin for any community of any size, whether it's a little bitty town out in the middle of nowhere or whether it's, you know, one of the great metropolises of this country, one of the great sins is to be dull. And I think if you read this book, whether you're someone who's close to it like I am or you're reading it from afar, that after you get done and uh, you, you come away and say, you know what, this is a pretty interesting place. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what you'd do with the sort of central metaphor, the boomtown notion, but the idea that you're going to have this very exciting explosion of fascinating things, and then a period of time where you get to sit and think about it for a while, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it, the boom, and then, but what's the uh, what's the corollary boom is bust. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, Steve Lackmeyer in his write-up on this, he said, Oklahoma City has always been and continues to be a tale of chaos and control. And that's <laughs> that's that's what I love is is the way that he's he's weaved in all of these all of these instances whether it's uh, the economy or tornadoes or NBA, which is it's funny. I would I would argue that, you know, two thirds to three fourths of this book focuses on NBA. We haven't talked a lick about basketball yet because there's there's so much other interesting things about it. And that that is an interesting part. But that's really that's that's the story that kind of follows the book all the way through to tell the rest of it you know the, the thunder has to exist to tell this narrative in this specific place and time and and you know the thunder rightly so deserves a lot of credit for uh seeing a, 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 par, a renaissance part of it um you know that doesn't exist without maps doesn't exist without a lot of people before that um but I, but i love i love seeing all of those stories kind of come together the the rise and falls of of the various instances of okc mm-hmm. yeah so if you're a basketball fan there's there's a lot here in there terms is, of yeah. because it's focused on you know a lot of it's focused on Harden's departure uh, and you know what was going to happen with uh, you know Westbrook and KD and surviving and how the team was going to negotiate that and kind of from both sides of it his pictures of, of Durant are kind of really moving too um, that that he's a nice guy but he's capable of doing you know he's capable of doing professional elbowing when the when the need arises yeah it. Uh in, in some ways, and, and there was a, a review of the uh, 
of the book in the New York Times, where, of course, uh, Sam Anderson works, uh, in the Sunday Book Review uh, not long ago, in which it, it, uh, the writer of the, uh, of the uh, review, uh, Will Blythe, uh, in, his, in his way of thinking, the basketball piece was sort of the weakest part of the book, just simply because much of what took place happened six years ago and in the sports world six years might as well be 60 years and so to a certain degree i agree with that but you know at the same time too um just the fact of the thunder being here over the last 10 years being in many ways the culmination of maps that was voted by the taxpayers in 1993 uh, as adam said you really couldn't tell a, a modern day story about Oklahoma City without a big chunk of uh, getting into into the thunder. Yeah, and I think there's there's pieces there as well about how embedded the team is in the city. Whether it's uh, you know Sam Presti's requirement that all new Thunder players have to go to the the National Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial uh, and experience that and understand it and understand sort of the f- the fabric of Oklahoma City. Um, I, I think that's 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 a big big pieces of how how much this isn't this isn't a not as you would think a team that was transplanted here and its identity is 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 still in other cities but it, it truly is sort of a part of OKC and I, lo- I love his analogy he's talking about this when he's talking about painting with Wayne Coyne but the three the three Oklahoma cities the Oklahoma City OKC and the city of Oklahoma City and sort of the all, all the different places again sort of this the, the theme of the, the trios that have to come together to make something happen yeah there's I think that there's a uh, both an internal and an external perspective and of course what we're talking about is from being here you know we're very close to the place that, that this book is about but there's also something that is I think a larger scale idea about how America works you know and doesn't work and how those two things kind of you know tumble forward particularly with cities being the 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 kind of unusual places that they are now uh, having shifted in terms of the economic base having shifted in terms of how they're trying to negotiate making a, a life that's livable for large numbers of people and oklahoma city in a lot of ways uh, in the way that anderson talks about it is doing something that's different from the cities that were much more entrenched because it's kind of like redefined itself a number of times even the imp destructive thing which you know and I'm, I'm from chicago and all of the stuff that daily destroyed breaks my heart but you know that's also part of it too stuff you know just it gets destroyed in the process of other things being created and that's you know kind of the those two in in uh, in opposition to each other creation and destruction is i think what allows these cities to become different than what we expect well great well there's there's a lot here there's certainly more that we can talk about we didn't even touch gary england too much but i think it's worth it's worth just saying that this is this is a book that i would certainly recommend picking up from what i've heard it's essentially sold out within oklahoma city bookstores so if you're looking for a physical copy uh and you're in the, the metro uh area it's going to be fairly hard to find but i can i can imagine that uh jeff bezos will make sure that you can have one delivered yeah, to your absolutely. door in two days. absolutely and, and, and without can, a doubt you can vicariously experience how how Oklahoma weather is experienced through the through the Gary England connection in the book. It's it's really yeah. it's pretty stunning. Yeah. All right. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. We're glad to have you on today. Thank you. And until next time, Ralph. If the world's still here, we'll be there. Yep. See ya. Thanks. <laughs>